morning, would you join me in a word of prayer as we come to God's Word? Father, would you be patient with us this morning as we try to think your thoughts after you? And thank you for this word in um, 1 Thessalonians. We pray that uh, as we try to understand uh, what you say, as we apply them into our lives, that you might uh, be gracious, help us to, to think rightly and to uh, have you and your spirit as our teacher. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Five weeks ago, we started uh, in our series here on belonging with the idea that uh, God is a relational God. Uh, He's called us into a a particular kind of relationship in Christ. He's adopted us to be his children. And just as he's always done, uh, he's gathering people. He's gathered uh, us in Christ, a people to be his very own. And his church, this gathering of people around the person and the work of Jesus, we function together like a body, each part belonging to the others and uh, each one contributing in, in different but necessary ways to the life and the vitality of the body. Uh, those are the things we've been thinking about together over the last four weeks. This morning, we turn our thoughts to a slightly different angle to consider that God's church, those who's gathered and those who are the body of Christ, we belong to the day. We don't belong to the night or to darkness. We belong to the day. Uh, In the beginning, so the account the book of Genesis tells us, when the world was formless and empty and there was only darkness... Do you remember what the first thing that God did was? He said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that light was good. And all through the scriptures you see that God and the things of God are associated with light and with brightness. You might remember that story of uh, Moses, the man of God who comes down from the mountain where he's been talking with God. Exodus 34 and uh, verse 29 uh, says this. Uh, when Moses came down from the Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the covenant in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. So he ends up in the story, he puts a scarf over his face whenever he comes down from talking with God so that he wouldn't freak people out. But that's apparently one of the after effects of being physically close to God. You carry this radiant glow, which lends me to believe that God himself would be absolutely resplendent. Light. Uh, is not just the Old Testament way of uh, thinking and talking about the things of God. It, it carries through the New Testament as well uh, in texts like the second letter to the Corinthians, uh, chapter 4 and verse 4, which says this, uh, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, Let there be light made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of, the face of Christ. 
People coming to trust in Jesus are described as God shining his light into their minds and into their hearts. And in our passage for today, which Ed read for us, 1 Thessalonians 5, again we see light as being the main picture that's used to talk about what this whole passage is about. This passage, uh, chapter 5 in 1 Thessalonians, is the tail end of a letter where Paul, the Apostle Paul has been talking about the day when Jesus will come back. After Jesus died, God raised him from the dead, and after he rose, he left, we're told, to uh, sit at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. He's promised that from there, one day, he's going to return to judge the living and the dead and bring in the fullness of his kingdom. And when you talk about that day and the end, the day of the Lord, uh, this day of judgment, straight away, a lot of people will be thinking about when. They want to know when, how long have we got till he comes back? How long have we got to get our affairs in order? Because people are pragmatic, I suppose. If it's going to be tomorrow, then there might be a few things that we need to reshuffle in our schedule. But if it's going to be not in your lifetime even, it's been 2,000 years and counting, if you know that it's going to be in the indefinite future when Jesus comes back, then perhaps that's another ball game altogether. Thing is, we're not told when. Which, while it annoys those of us who like to be organized and efficient, on the upside, it forces you to always be prepared. The one thing we know is that we're not going to know when Jesus is going to come back. We know it's going to happen, but we don't know exactly when. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates... We do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Uh, we have some expectant mothers in the room today, I believe. Maybe you can reflect on your own experience of being in that position. Now you're in your last trimester of your pregnancy or your wife is and everything is big and uncomfortable and towards the end, approaching that last month, I don't know if you've been there, but you feel like the baby could come at any moment because how on earth could your body possibly get any bigger? And the thing is, you're not going to know exactly when your due date is going to be. They give you an estimate right at the start. They say, you know, this is the due date that the baby is going to be born on, but that's just an educated guess. You know, it sort of goes two weeks either way of that and that's fairly normal. Unless, of course, you book yourself in these days for an elective Caesar and you kind of know the date then. Uh, well, kind of. There's always the chance that baby will come early. There's that risk. And when you're in that space and you're towards the end of your, your pregnancy, everything is a bit touch and go. Every day, you're just not really sure. And that day when Jesus will come back is going to be like that. You know the day is going to come. It's getting closer. You can see the signs, but... You don't know exactly when. And the way that passage describes it, it seems like there's going to be some people who are not going to see it coming at all. People are going to be completely caught out when those labor pains start, if you can believe it. They're as if they've missed all the signs and they didn't even know they were pregnant. And then, bam. Totally outside of their expectations. While people are saying uh, peace and safety, which I don't think they're literally saying, but I think they're living like things are fine. 
all of a sudden God's judgment and destruction will come, like the rudest shock. And they're totally unprepared. Verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. You know what's coming. You have your eyes wide open, so to speak. To be in the dark about something. That's a phrase we use when we want to say that. You don't know something. You're in the dark. You're unaware. And uh, driving in the country at night time is a bit like that. I don't know if you've been on a country road at night time, somewhere in nowhere in Australia. It's not generally advisable. Sometimes you can't avoid it. Because the roads are pretty fast. They're mostly 100 or 80, 80 k's at least. And with your headlights on, you can just about see far enough ahead of you. But even then, it's a little bit hairy. Uh, you have zero reaction time if something were to jump out at the road in front of you. That's why there's often so much roadkill you see on those roads. Being in the dark about God means you have zero reaction time when that day he comes, jumps out at you, and you crash right into it. But you, Paul writes, you can see where you're going. It's not just that you have your headlights on. There's something about your identity now that's tied up with the knowledge of God and with his holiness and with his glory. You are now a child of God. You are, verse, verse 5, all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. You're not a child of the night anymore. You're a child of the day, God's glorious day. And I, I picture it a bit like this. Now, this is taking a little bit of license with the biblical imagery, so take it with a grain of salt. But I wonder if... It's helpful to think about the whole story of our world in terms of uh, light and dark, how much light and how much dark there is throughout the history of our world. So in the beginning, uh, you know that against the backdrop of darkness, God creates light. And it's good. He makes man and woman in his image in the garden, and that's the beginning of light in our world. But you know full well that very quickly the man and the woman very uh, almost immediately choose to reject God and his way. And their rejection plunges them into a world of darkness. Life outside the garden, life under curse. And things will get a lot worse before they get better. By the time of Noah, before the flood, we're told that every thought and inclination of mankind was towards evil all the time. And the darkness deepens. But God preserves a tiny hint of light in the person of Noah. Noah, we're told, is the only righteous person left. And Noah's story is the story of salvation. From his descendants, ten generations later, God calls one man, the one man, Abram, to follow him. And to his credit, Abram listens. Another flicker of light. And God blesses Abram's family, turning them into a nation of people, not just one man, but now a nation of people to whom God gives his law and his knowledge of who he is, and he reveals himself. And they are to be a light to the world, the group who, uh, through whom the world would be blessed if they would continue to walk with God and in his light. And so most of our Old Testament scripture, we, we follow 
this spotlight on, on Israel. But too often they forget. Too often they walk away as generation after generation they test God's patience and they're lured into the darkness, following the ways of the nations around them. And at most of the way through, only a handful, a little tiny speck of the remnant of Israel in every generation hold on to the light that God's given, while the rest scatter into the darkness. And there are moments of rallying around God's light, but those moments are too few and far between. The overall trajectory is, is not good. But you see, God isn't done. In the fullness of time, God sends his son, born of a woman, into the world, into the darkness, to be, even as he says himself, to be the light of the world. And he does that by showing glimpses of God's light as he heals and as he teaches people about God's kingdom of light, which he says is coming and has now come. But his greatest work by far was to die for us. There were enough people at Jesus' time who loved the darkness, who hated his light, that they wanted to snuff it out. And he let them. Because in his death, Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice to pay for the deeds of darkness that the world has ever done. And if you know the story, when Jesus was on the cross, we're told that darkness covers the land for three hours before he breathes his last. But God raises Jesus from the dead in a moment of what I can only imagine to be glorious light. And he gives all those who trust in Jesus the right to become his children. Where he fills their the whole darkness of theirs with his glorious and wonderful light. And that's what I think it means in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 5 to be children of this light, children of the day, no longer belonging to the darkness. The light of Christ has already dawned in you who see, you who know and realize the truth about him. You don't have to wait till Jesus returns. And where it's all heading uh, which is what we'll hear more about next week in the last talk in our series. We're heading into an age where there's going to be no more darkness. Where God's light is going to be bleeding obvious to everybody, anybody, to see for all eternity. But you see that already. Because in Jesus, you're children of the day. And there's things you do during the daytime that's different to what you do during the nighttime. Now that you live in the day, if it's night, most of us, I imagine, we sleep. We try to. And during the day, we're up and about. Uh, I've got a five-year-old who gets up at the crack of dawn, which means I'm often up at the crack of dawn as well. <laughs> Maybe Evie's on or something. According to her, if the sun's up, it's time to be awake. Verse 6. So then let us not be like the others who are asleep. Let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Uh, to be asleep here, I think, means to be unconscious and unaware of the things of God. And to be drunk here, I think, is talking about not being able to see the things of God clearly because you're under the influence of something else that's inebriating you. And you do that at night. But if day has dawned, and if you're a child of the light, 
instead of being a child of the darkness. You're meant to be focused on the things of God. You're not meant to be day drunk or coming under the influence of anything that stops you seeing the things of God clearly. I wonder if even this morning you're aware that you're letting something get in the way of you seeing God and the things of God clearly. Because what you're supposed to do when you're living in anticipation, when you're expecting that baby to come at any moment, what you're supposed to do is get yourself ready. The call is to be awake and to be sober and to be armed, or more accurately, I think, to be armoured. Verse 8. Can we move the slide over to verse 8, please? Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on, the, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Uh, the fact that you see the, the, the image that you get there is that we're supposed to put on protective gear. And the fact that you're meant to put on protective gear tells you something. The uh, goalie in an ice hockey match doesn't put on all that gear just for fun. He's expecting incoming fire. And that chest piece protects your heart and your ribs and all your vitals. And for us, that's faith and love. And the helmet you have is hope. That's what you want to have on. How do those things protect you? Let's start with love. If you're full of love, I put to you, there's nothing stronger. Love is stronger than death, so the Song of Songs tells us. It's the most powerful thing we do when we love. The world would know that you are my disciples, Jesus says, when you love one another. And if you're filled with the knowledge of God's love, and you're part of a community and the body of Christ that's upholding each other in love, there's an incredible strength there. What about faith? This other part of your chest piece. If you're putting on faith and trusting in God, then you're drawing from all of his resources, depending on his strength, not just your own. When you stake your well-being on his character and on his word, you'll find, I think, along with any other, many others who've done the same, that God is not going to let you down. He is the solid rock that the wise man says he can build his life on. And the last part of the gear that's mentioned that we're supposed to put on is hope as a helmet to protect our head and our minds. I've heard that in difficult situations, and we all live with different struggles and uh, with different trials, but you keep going, don't you? The moment that people give up, I've heard, is the moment when they can't see there's any more hope. That's when we stop. When you look ahead and there is zero good options and there are zero positive outcomes and nothing to be gained, that's often when we're done. But for the Christian, there is always hope. And again, not because of our own resources and our ability, there's always hope in the finished work of Jesus. And there's always hope in the transforming, renewing work of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, 
but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him forever. Or elsewhere, it's written, neither death or life, neither angels or demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is our grounds for hope. And that doesn't change. We belong to the day. So let's be people who are obviously full of faith and love and hope. May that be what characterizes us more than anything to do with this. Faith and love and hope. And if you feel like this morning you're a bit short in one, one or more of those areas, you're, maybe you're feeling like your trust in God has been eroded. Maybe you're feeling like you don't see the love of God as a running theme in your life. Maybe you've lost sight of hope. If that's you, then would you please do something about it? Please talk to somebody today. Come talk to me. Come talk to somebody that you trust. Come and mention it to someone in your small group this week. But give us the chance to listen and to encourage you and to build you up. In this world, we will have trouble, but Jesus died for us so that whatever happens, whether we're awake or whether we're asleep, we might live together with him. Amen.